The sermon text this morning is Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Exodus 15, 1 through 21. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Well, we have songs for different events in our lives, right? Once a year we get happy birthday sung to us to remind us we're one year older and closer to death. Uh, at graduation we often hear pomp and circumstance. Mendelssohn's wedding march is standard for wedding ceremonies. Auld Lang Syne is often sung to call in the new year. And what sporting event is complete without Europe's The Final Countdown or the theme song from Rocky? I don't think they're complete without those. Singing is part of our lives from our earliest days. We're sung lullabies at night and then we use those same melodies to memorize the days of the week in the states of the Union in school. And when we get older, it's often melodies that call us back to a bygone era. And it's no different with church, right? 
So from the earliest days of Christianity 2,000 years ago, followers of Christ have used lyrics set to music to teach truths, to communicate praise to God, and to encourage one another. In fact, this morning, we go all the way back to the 15th century B.C. and find God's people using a song to worship him, the first song of the Bible. So in the passage Stan has just read for us, let's see just two things this morning. The object of our song and the reason for our song. First, the object of our song. Right there in verse 1 we read, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang a song to the Lord. And then later in verse 20 we see that Miriam, Moses' sister, leads a song to the Lord. The Israelites use this wonderful song to put into words the wonders they've just experienced. Remember what has just taken place in chapter 14. We considered that two weeks ago. God has led his people out of slavery in Egypt. But before too long, Pharaoh decided to pursue them and overtake them. And he did. But in an incredible display of sovereign power, God had opened that Red Sea, allowing the people of Israel to pass through in safety. And then he'd use that very same sea to squash their Egyptian enemies. And now in chapter 15 comes a song of response to what God has done. The Israelites use music to exalt God as greater than all other gods, to rejoice in him as Savior and Lord. So what do we see about God in this song? There's a ton. We could have 10 sermons on this song, but for our purposes this morning, let's see three highlighted truths about God that they're singing about. First, God is triumphant. God is triumphant. He's the winner of the battle. That's what the Israelites say in verse 1, right? I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. In verse 3, they call God a man of war. They recount how he tossed Pharaoh's army with all his chariots into the sea. They see God's triumph and they give him glory for both how he saved them and how he's judged their enemies. Towards the end of their song, they look forward to what he will do as they make their way into the promised land. I love how this song looks backward and looks forward. And they sing with confidence as they've seen how God's works have impacted their enemies already. Their assured victory. They sing, terror and dread fall upon them, speaking of their enemies. Because of the greatness of your arm, O God, they, our enemies, are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. The people pass by whom you have purchased. See the overwhelming picture of God as this triumphant, victorious, reigning king. And really, the whole theme of Exodus, all 40 chapters, is summed up in that final line, verse 18. The Lord will reign forever 
and ever. This God is king. This God has won the battle. This God has fought for his people. See in verse 9, Pharaoh had intentions for triumph, didn't he? Pharaoh had all these good plans for his own glory. He said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. But in the end, it wasn't Pharaoh who was the subject of those sentences. It wasn't Pharaoh who turned out to be the eye in those intentions. It was the Lord. Because Pharaoh did pursue, right? He even overtook them, but that's where it all ended. And after that, the subject of those sentences that Pharaoh just uttered in so supreme confidence, it's actually God who's the subject of those sentences. It's God who's dividing the spoil. It's God whose desires having its fill of them. God's plan's being done. When man's intentions meet God's plan, there's no battle. There's no debate. God wins. God is triumphant. The second thing we see about God highlighted in this song is that he is a personal covenant-keeping God. This grand display of his power and authority doesn't mean that he's this disassociated remote deity. No, he's very present with his people. The same God who's hurling the storm onto the sea is the God who desires to know his people. So all throughout this book of Exodus, God has been showing them that he's delivering them because he's promised to do that. Back all the way in Genesis, hundreds of years earlier, he told Abraham, we've gone back to this passage a lot, but he told Abraham his descendants would go into a foreign land for 400 years and then be brought out in triumph. And so far, God has stooped down in mercy to save his people because he promised to. In chapter 2, Israel had cried out and God had heard their groaning. We saw there he had remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so here in verse 2, the Israelites shout aloud, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. This God hasn't just shown up now. He's been faithful to them ever since the days of their fathers. And they know it, and they praise him. I love how God's people respond to his care and compassion by calling him their God. Do you see that? The Lord is my strength and my song. You can't just claim that God belongs to you because you want it that way. We must remember that God has pledged himself to his people by covenant. A covenant he will not break. A covenant that he staked his own name to. See how Israel uses this deeply personal, intimate covenant language. 
They know God. They know Yahweh. And they know he's bound himself to them in mercy. Look at verse 3. The Lord is his name. That's not just for his name tag. That's, that's a sentence jam-packed with theological significance. Because that name, the Lord, Yahweh, is the personal name for God, right? We've said this a lot, but here it is again. It's this name that back in chapter 3, he had used to reveal how incredibly transcendent he is, how he is I am who I am. He is the self-existent one, and it's also the name that he uses to show that he's going to have mercy on his people. Remember, back in chapter 3, he had said, I will deliver you. And those words, I will, are the name I am. God uses his very name, his very nature, his very existence, his very character to give himself in promise. It's this covenant-keeping character of God that causes Israel here to proclaim, to sing, to have confidence that just as he has delivered them, he's going to lead them into the promised land. And so they sing there in verse 13, you have led in your steadfast, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. And they shout, God has redeemed us. He has delivered us. He has purchased us. We belong to him. He is our God. And so they sing. I wonder, can you sing that? Is God your God? Do you belong to him? Does he belong to you? See, you can sing to God as just an abstract theological concept. Or you can sing to him as a precious possession. Anyone can sing a hymn. Anyone can hum along to Amazing Grace at a funeral service. But only God's people can say, you're my God, you're my song, you're my salvation. How about you? Is God just an abstraction for you? A song you hum along to? Just one thing on your playlist? Or does that song belong to you? Is he your song? Can you sing with that old hymn, I am his and he is mine? teens and young people, I, I can't help but think about you guys when I'm thinking about the idea of God as our God. And I exhort you, don't be content to just come to church and sing the lyrics of these hymns if you can't believe them for yourself. If you aren't holding on to this God as your God. Instead, sing to grab hold of Yahweh by faith, to cling to him. If you don't know him, don't sing. Ponder and think about what you're hearing and wonder if he is your song and own him as your own. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I wonder if you've ever thought that the creator God of the universe wants a personal, personal relationship with you. 
Uh, He's above you. He's the creator. That's for sure. But he's not disinterested in you. It's the opposite. He has pursued you in Christ like he pursued his people Israel. Your sin separates you from God. He's holy. You aren't. But he has sent his son to take the penalty for your sin. And he's provided a way for you to know him as your God, to sing to him as your possession. If you'll trust in God, if you'll trust in Christ and what he's done for you, God will place your sin, the sin that offends him so much, he'll place that not on you, but on the shoulders of his son. And he will draw near to you in grace. Go to Jesus and be saved. All right, so God is the triumphant God. He's the covenant-keeping God. Third thing we see highlighted here about God is that he alone is God. And this has really been the entire purpose for everything that's gone down in Egypt. God has come to save his people, but along the way, he's made it a little bit more difficult. He's hardened Pharaoh's heart. He's executed these incredible strikes on the land of Egypt. He's led his people out of the wilderness, but then had them turn around to face Pharaoh's army and to be caught between the army and the sea. Why has God made this so difficult? Remember how throughout God has said that he alone will be shown to be God. Pharaoh, back in verse 9 there in chapter 15, had had all these big I will intentions, right? I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, I will beat Yahweh. But back in chapter 6, if you'll remember, there were bigger, more powerful, more sovereign I will statements that we studied. Remember? Say, therefore, the people of Israel, Yahweh talking to Moses, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment and I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord. Pharaoh's I wills have no match for God. God says, I will deliver, and the Egyptians will know that I'm God. And so it is. There's no rival to the throne of Yahweh. Israel has stared death in the face, and then they've seen God act to save them, leaving them with no doubt that he has done it. It wasn't their strength. It wasn't their moxie. It was God and God alone. They just stayed and watched and said nothing. And so it makes sense that they sing there in verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, you know, we, we often, as people, use comparisons or similes or analogies when we try to explain something new to somebody else, right? We draw on previous experiences. So maybe this past week, a, a friend said to you, oh, you went to see the new Avengers movie. That's great. How was it? And you could respond by saying, yes, and I have no idea if this is true because I haven't seen it. 
yeah, it's like a mix between the, the second Captain America and Black Panther, you know? I'm just using an analogy, guys. Or someone might ask you after a trip to the, the eastern part of the world, you saw the Taj Mahal on your trip. That's great. I know some of you have, and I have not. Uh, and you might say, yes, it's like the U.S. Capitol building, just more elaborate. I don't know if that's the case. Just using examples, folks. We use examples all the time, right? We use what we already know to explain what we don't. And in the Bible, we see those sorts of analogies even in this song. We see them all the time. We see descriptions of God having nostrils and an arm, things he definitely does not have, but ways for us to understand what he's like. You know, you know when you're talking to somebody and their nostrils start to flare a little bit, you know they're peeved at you. And God's the same way, not because he has nostrils, but because he has wrath on his enemies. So we see these analogies and we see these pictures. This is what God is like. But then we come to verse 11 and we see that with this God, ultimately all comparisons, all similes, all analogies fail and fall on their faces because nothing is like him. He is other. He is beyond. He is above. He is different. He is transcendent. And so we sing. We sing, behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our king. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. It's this God who is the object of our song. It's this God who is the object of Israel's song. He is triumphant. He keeps his covenant promises, and he alone is God over all other gods. And so if he's the object of our song, what's the reason for our song? That's the second point we'll think about and close with this morning, the reason for our song. And the preeminent reason for Israel's song here is to give worship, right? It's a song of thanksgiving and gratitude. Right there in verse 1, they say, I will sing to the Lord. Why? Because he's triumphed, triumphed gloriously. And so if this Yahweh alone is God, we must worship him. We've transferred our allegiance and our service away from Pharaoh, that phony God whose kingdom was shown up to be weak and frail. And we've transferred our allegiance to Yahweh, to the one who's proved himself to be the one and only sovereign. And so we must worship him. As I was thinking about this song, I love how it repeatedly emphasizes God's power over the sea, right? There's been so many songs written over the course of human history about the power of the sea. Think of those old pirate ditties about storms and gales and shipwrecks. And then see here a song to the God over the sea. The one greater than Davy Jones, the sovereign over death itself. And so they use their song to shout aloud to Yahweh who he is and what he's done. They worship him. And that's the same reason we sing today, right? We have much to thank God for, much reason to praise him and give him worship. Because much like Israel, we too have been delivered by him. We've seen him triumph, not just over a sea, 
but over our worst enemies of sin and Satan and hell. We've seen him keep his covenant, not just to deliver his people from Egypt, but to ultimately deliver his people from death and the cross of Christ. We've seen God as the one and only God who went to the extreme end of sending his son to be weak like us, to know sadness and grief like us, to even know our death so that we might be made alive. Church, if Israel had something to praise God about, how much more do we? If Israel had much to sing to God about, how much more do we? That's why we sing. We sing to remember what God has done and to praise him for it. We sing to proclaim his worth and his character. We sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We sing, immortal, invisible, God only wise. Tony Marita puts it like this. Every believer should sing to the Lord, not because they have a good voice, but because of what God has done for them. That is what saved people do. So, dear brothers and sisters, when you sing, are you worshiping God? Are you contemplating his nature? Are you reflecting on his attributes. These hymns are carefully chosen, not just to be words that you can fill up what you don't know, to just proclaim to God, to get in your church time. These hymns are here to instruct you and to teach you who God is, to remind you what he's done. They're sermons, they're lyrical sermons spoken into your soul and stuck in your memory. I wonder if you ever experienced that, no matter how much you liked the hymn or didn't. Sunday afternoon comes, and then Wednesday afternoon comes, and the, the tune's still in your head. One author says songs help us remember because songs are portable theology. We take them with us. And here at Loudon Valley, we want to be careful what we sing. We want to sing songs full of rich truth about God so as to give us a broader, richer vocabulary with which to praise him. For he's worthy. And just as an aside, singing in church is not for the happy alone. If you think about some of the songs we sing some of them are for those who are deep in depression and melancholy. Dear refuge of my weary soul, find rest, my soul. Be still, my soul. Praise and singing in church is not for those who feel jubilant, but for those who know their need of Christ. And church, notice there's even more going on in this song in Exodus 15 than just a one-direction praise song to God. Uh, so this is not just merely a worship song you can add to your personal iTunes and sing in the car. This is a corporate song, right? This is a so song being sung by God's people together. They're not just going into their tents with their cattle and singing to their pet goats. 
right? They're singing together. They're being led in, in song together. This is a song being sung by all God's people as a group. It's not just a hymn spoken to God. It's spoken to one another. It's not until verse 6 that the song directly addresses God. Before that, it just speaks to one another of his amazing character and acts. And church family, it's the same for us. We don't gather here on Sunday mornings just to sing to God alone. Just me and Jesus. The same thing I could do in my car on the way to work. That we come to join voices in worship to God together to call one another, to praise. Do you know that lifting your hands, whether you do that or not, is not just something that shows that you're excited about Jesus? Lifting your hands is meant to show other people that you are excited about Jesus. Of course, there's sinful motivations to that. I'm holier than you. But there's also great motivations to that. Church family, lift your hands, lift your voices to this marvelous Jesus. I mean, think about our hymns. Think about the hymns that are not directly like first and foremost directed to God, but to one another. We just sang one this morning, come people of the risen king who delight to bring him praise, talking to each other. Or, oh church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. We'll sing that in the next few weeks. Or come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. Have you ever noticed how many of our songs are meant to be sung to each other? as well as to God. We're a church family reminding one another with our voices who we are and what God has done. What's more, even some hymns that we have, we use to speak to ourselves before we even dare to speak to others, before we even dare to speak to God. I mentioned some of them just earlier, but I love that hymn. We should sing it more often. It just has such a morose melody, but maybe we can write a new melody to it. But be still, my soul. Thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. We often sing, find rest, my soul, in God alone and trust in him completely. These hymns are spoken to yourself. So dear church family, let's never treat singing as a mere church formality. As we sing, we sing to our hearts we sing to one another and we sing to our God. So let's sing with conviction. Let's sing to remember what we have so easily forgotten this past week. That our Savior loves us. That he will hold us fast. Sing to your church family around you. Realize they've struggled with unbelief and despair this past week in the same ways you have. So tell them. Tell them to come praise and glorify Sing to the Lord. Give him glory. When we, when we sing, we are not listening to our hearts. We are instructing our hearts. We're remembering what's true. I love what Jonathan Lehman has written. He says, God has given music to the gathered church so that the people together can own, affirm, rejoice in, and unite around God's word. Far better than sweet harmonies of a few trained singers is the rough and hail sound of pardoned criminals, delighting with one voice in their Savior. The most beautiful instrument in any Christian service is the sound of the congregation singing. 
and remember what Stan read for us earlier from Revelation chapter 15. You see God's people there with instruments in their hands singing. And what are they singing in heaven? They're singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Church family, the song goes on. The song of Moses doesn't end. As we sing, we sang last week, when from death I'm free, what? I'll sing on. Think about it. Congregational singing tunes our hearts for heaven. Because in heaven, there won't be any more sin. There won't be any more church discipline. There won't be any more need for deliverance from sin or enemies to be rescued from. But there will still be singing. The song of salvation never stops. So Christian, how do you approach singing here at Loudon Valley Baptist Church? It's easy to fall into thinking of it as just a mere formality. Seven hymns every Sunday seems like a lot. Is it, is it just alone time for you and Jesus? A pick-me-up? A, a morale boost? Not saying that's wrong, but it's not enough. Is congregational singing in this church a preparation for the singing of eternity? a joining of our voices with the joining of the voices of saints in heaven even now, praising the Lamb? Is it worship to God? Is it calling your church family to believe what you believe? Is it instructing your soul away from sin and toward the beauties of Christ? In a little bit, we're going to sing the Lord is our salvation. And as you sing it, I wonder, Christian, have you seen God deliver you in the darkest times of life? Have you experienced his strength in trials? Have you seen his grace when you were weak? Have you rested in his hope as you contemplate your death? Have you rejoiced as you consider the cross? If so, that hymn's going to cover all of that. And so sing about it. Sing to me about it. Because I often forget. We forget. Church family, when you sing, you're serving your family here. You're serving one another. Because we don't sing because we're hyper-spiritual. We sing because we aren't hyper-spiritual. And we are so in need of grace. So the next time you sing, sing not just for you. Sing for me. Sing for your brothers and sisters here at Loudoun Valley. Sing so we can persevere until Jesus returns. Sing to remember along with Israel that the victory has been won and the Lord is our salvation. Who is like the Lord our God? Sing until he comes back and then get ready to sing some more. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for creating us and then recreating us with the gift of song. For giving us this gift of proclaiming your truth. Lord, I recognize that there are brothers and sisters here who 
don't feel like singing this morning, who feel perhaps distant from you, or trapped in sin, I pray for them. We pray for them. Lord, that these songs would minister to their soul. And we pray for our church family as a whole that we would be a community of boisterous singers. That we'd be bombastic in proclaiming your beauty. In reminding one another what you've done and telling our souls again and again and again and again until you return. The Lord is our salvation. Amen.